looks like we're having a debate. I know, I'm just saying that. Like, <laughs> just turn it this way, right? Right. There is, there is a debate going on tonight, I but, uh, yeah. uh, okay. <laughs> but, uh, so, uh, we're going to share things from our experiences. Uh, you know, I suppose uh, we just did this earlier today in Atara in a slightly different form. Uh, switch off, I guess, uh, providing insights. And uh, one of the things that uh, I think we'll do here also is uh, please feel free to raise your hand if in the middle if there's some kind of follow-up question, something that you want more, more information about. With something we're touching upon, we'll have time for questions at the end as also uh, as well for things that are more general uh, to leave things open. Uh, we are going to also be talking about at the end the things that we can do, projects uh, that we hope we can uh, continue with uh, that we've learned over the course of our trip. And uh, yeah, so again, be involved now at the end at various uh, stages of, of all of this. Don't feel like you're interrupting or anything like that uh, to raise your hand. So uh, first I'll just, I guess, start by saying that uh, uh, I'd say thank you. Uh, we, we were able to represent all of you uh, and more on this trip. Uh, all the various Jews of all stripes that we met while we were in Israel, uh, you know, felt the hug from everybody and the fact that we brought cards that said, you know, uh, that we that we were able to say where we were from, and they realized, oh, from all the way in the United States, wherever they think Cincinnati might be in the United States, uh, they, they, they felt the love that there are people who are willing to travel all the way to them, people who are representing, uh, you know, communities, Kahilos, uh, uh, it meant a lot, it really did mean a lot. We gained a lot from them, but also, you know, and they, they said this explicitly in many instances, they, they felt uh, the warmth and the love that we, uh, we're sending their way, courtesy of all of you. So thank you uh, very much for allowing us to be your representatives. We appreciate it very much. Okay, we didn't script anything. So we're going to, as they say, wing it. I want to really start off by saying that it's not a coincidence that we're standing up here, myself, Rabbi Goldschmidt, in Shari Torah, talking about our experiences in Eretz Israel. There's so much that's thematic with what's going on today in Eretz Yisrael, with what we experienced on our trip, and what Claudius was experiencing as a whole. It's no secret that myself and my Goldschmidt are best friends. I spoke about that on, on Matzah Shabbos, for those who were there. <clears throat> but we really went representing the community. The community and Klal Yisrael have merged in a way that's perhaps never been this way. Really never been this way. In the past, unfortunately, there was a lot of division. Especially in Eretz Yisrael, the incredible divide that was taking place over the past number of months. It's so funny, this morning, I happened to have an old Mishpacha magazine that the front cover talk about, spoke about, is it repairable what's taking place in Eretz Yisrael ever. That was like something along the lines of the headlines. And I was reading that and I said, now we know the answer is yes. Because it did, it happened. Something shifted, something changed, which no one could have ever imagined just a few months ago was even possible. There was such a divide. The chasm was so great that it, it seemed like something which was impossible. And the fact that myself the Goldschmidt together, went, really represents what Klai Yisrael is experiencing. Emerging that anything that one may have thought had the possibility to divide people, 
the opposite is happening. We're part of one nation. We're part of Kal Yisrael. We're connected in the most deepest way possible. And that's really what the entire soul is experiencing. I don't know what I've said where and when and how, but I'm just going to share one point where I think this is brought out to me was in the, in the strongest way possible. There was a woman who was talking about her husband, her late husband, who was killed. Akedah Hashem. He lost his life defending a Moshav. Him and nine others went from a Moshav called Shlomiel, which is adjacent to another Moshav called Prigan. And I think this is the exact representative we're talking about. Shlomiel was a religious Moshav. Prigan is, is a not yet religious Moshav. And they told us how in the past, this Moshav Shlomiel had someone adopted Prigan as under their wings. They said they used to go there on Purim and read the Megillah and have a prayer on Purim. They were sort of adopting this Moshav. And that morning, that fateful morning of simple story, they heard that there was infiltrators in Prigan. At that moment, they had to make a decision. Maybe the most difficult decision they ever made. They were a voluntary Shomrim watching over this Moshav, called them first responders. And they had to make a decision. Do we leave our post, our own Moshav, and go down the road to protect the Moshav, which they knew for sure was infiltrated already? Or do we stay back and protect our own? Decision which they certainly grappled with, and it was probably a very difficult decision. And ultimately decided, there we know they're infiltrators, we have to go down there, and they left. And they went, ten of these volunteers went down to protect the other Moshav. Twelve terrorists who had infiltrated. And they fought a battle. And they killed all twelve of them. Protecting this Moshav Prigan from, there was zero, not just casualties, zero wounded in Prigan as a result of their heroism. But they lost four people in the battle. Four of these volunteers were killed. And we spoke to one of the Amanus, one of the widows. And she spoke about the heroism of her husband, the fact that he left to go defend members of Kal Yisrael. Again, dropping labels, dropping backgrounds where they're from, you know, difference. And the end of her presentation, she told us that if the Avas Yisrael, if the love from fellow Jew to fellow Jew is going to be what's going to stay and permeate and continue throughout the Jewish people, that her husband's death is not for naught. Her husband's death is not going to be for nothing. And to me, that was the most striking message because that's what we felt. That's what we're feeling today. That's what we felt in Eretz Yisrael. And that's what the entire country really is shifted towards in the most incredible way, really 180 degrees. And therefore, I think that the fact that we're doing this is just representative of what's taking place in the entire Kalah Yisrael. And as she said, if this could continue, this is the most valuable, valuable thing that Kalah Yisrael will walk away with, and certainly the beginning of the Gula. And we, we can't say that. She can, in the sense of being able to say, has the Almana, has the widow. Uh, if it comes to, if this leads to unity, that is a lasting one, and she emphasized the lasting part, that's where she said, 
you guys. She was pointing to all of us. You have work to do. Make sure it stays that way. She feels like it will have justified. Can't, I can't personally use that word. Those are her words. It will have justified what Kali Yisrael went through on October 7th. Um, the, the challenge I mentioned, I think, the, the very first week here, I mentioned that when, what this, when this was happening is, of course, there's the natural reaction for unity. It's not a given. That it's going to last is by no means a given. It's going to require a lot of work to make sure that happens. Uh, someone else who, who spoke to this, uh, Rabbi Daron Peretz, is one of the heads of Mizrahi. He has a, uh, a son who is wounded. We'll talk more maybe about uh, some of the other things that uh, his family has been involved in, but he has a son who's in captivity also. He himself quoted uh, uh, a Jew, actually, you may have heard of him, he's a politician named Rahm Emanuel. said, uh, you know, a line that uh, sometimes people might be a bit more cynical of, I am myself, and he says, don't let a crisis go to waste, right? Uh, what he meant in this context, Rabbi Peretz said, is that, you know, it's hard, it's very frustrating that we have to learn these lessons in this way. You know, I mentioned in Shul, you know, it would be better if somebody could just give a rousing drusha speech that goes viral and then everybody decides to be unified without such a, a horrible human cost that we've experienced. Uh, but at the same time, it is what it is. We, for whatever reason, Kali Yisrael couldn't get there by means of such a le- less painful process. But instead, we experienced it in the way that we did. It's very important not to let it go to waste, to make sure that this is something which has a lasting sense of unity. Uh, and uh, then again, like uh, this woman, like uh, her name was um, her name was Dana Cohn, and uh, when she said that, it was just that much more powerful and jarring that you know she's putting it on us to make sure that unity is something that we maintain. There's so many other. Your lessons that we certainly walked away with. One of the things that I think was so striking was some of the heroism that that we saw, that we that just saw, but the people, the, the pride that both parents had in the heroism of their own children, of their loved ones. The gvura, the strength that they that they displayed, really mind-boggling, mind-boggling. One of the places where this was brought out, perhaps most to me, was there was he was a rav, or Selatsky was his name was, and he was there on that fateful morning on Simchas Torah with a number of his children. And two of his children were with him, among others who decided that they're going, once they heard the call, voluntarily. They're going to do what they can to fight. He said they had pistols and nothing else. And they themselves probably realized that it almost is, seems to be an effort and futility to go fight a band of terrorists with pistols, but they said they're going anyway. If they can make a difference, if they can help, if they can try to battle on some level to protect, they're going to do it. And they left. 24-year-old son, 31-year-old son, both married, left behind wives. And they went to go protect a moshav that was, I think, about an hour away where they heard there was the infiltrators. And they went down there and they entered the Moshav, and he said that subsequently he actually saw the video footage 
of what took place as they were entering the Moshav. And he sees them entering, there was the two of them against a band, who knows how many, terrorists. And they started doing what they can. And he said he saw that almost soon after they came in and began this gun battle, they were both wounded, they were shot. And one would think that they would retreat. They realize that they're up against who knows how many terrorists. They're done. They tried. They were wounded. Turn around, retreat, and go back. And the opposite took place. They kept going. <coughs> Knowing, certainly with probably a certainty that what their end was going to be and where they were going to end up. And they both were killed. He said he actually, as didn't see actually what, what took place because it <coughs> went off of the screen. They were both killed together and they died together. And just taking that itself, the heroism of, of people who were here to defend Klai Yisrael, we know we're probably going to give our lives for it. But that's what matters. Defending, doing what we can to save Jewish lives. And they did. They did. They, they held back to a certain extent the attackers that were there. And just a example among many of the incredible strength that we saw of people who did whatever they can, knowingly that they were probably not going to survive for the sake of saving Kal Yisrael. The, the instinctual reaction to do something like that, uh, to jump in knowing that these are going to be your last moments on earth when you jump into that, because you want to give everybody else extra time to escape, which they did, by the way. They did save a lot of folks with their efforts. That's a certain heroism that's really, you know, we, we all hope that we could accomplish that in, in trying moments if it was ever to God forbid occur. I'll point out just in terms of keeping, keeping the unity going, trying to make sure that it continues. This Rabbi Slavki, the, uh, the father of these boys, he's also, he was a, uh, a rev in a community. Um, something that he's hoping to do to make efforts with respect to this is to start more national dialogue, ways in which the social uh, structure in Israel can be repaired because he's, he is thinking ahead. He understands that in, in crisis mode, it's easy to get together. Later on, the same fights that they had before might spring up again. And he is uh, right now, I think, still behind the scenes somewhat. I'm going to probably uh, reach out to him and look for an update sometime soon. But he has been in touch with a wide <coughs> representation among the Jewish people in Israel to see what can we do to make sure this doesn't happen again? What can we actually set up? Um, I don't know if he's here. Somebody, somebody shared with me uh, some remarks by uh, a guy named Noam Spira uh, on social media. And uh, he wrote the following. It's a little bit of a challenge. It's in some ways depressing, but I think uh, the kind of work Rabbi Slaki is, is working on is you know, meant to counteract this. You know, you've, you've all heard of the, uh, the product, I can't believe it's not butter, right? It's not butter. It tastes like butter. Okay, fine. So he wrote... Uh, this uh, Noam Spira, he wrote, coming to a store near you for a limited time, introducing, I can't believe it's not unity. That's what he said. And again, this is going to sound very depressing, and that's what you have to actually fight against. He says, do you know why the unity, after and nationhood will disappear when the war is over? 
It's because we didn't use the time together to talk about the real issues dividing us. We just ignore our differences because for a moment we all have the same needs and goals. We put aside our differences for the sake of unity. That language is telling. We put aside our differences. We did not accept or settle them. Before the war, the country saw itself as two different sides who were out to get each other. But now that for a moment we don't see each other as enemy monsters, we have the opportunity to get somewhere. Yes, there must be another recipe for unity, but as of yet, nobody is offered an alternative, so you must use what you've got. It's time to harness the unity catalyst and go out there and make some real unity. How do we begin? Well, I have some suggestions, and I'm sure if you thought about it, you would too, but we have to start an actual conversation first. That's what he wrote. And this is the kind of work Rabbi Slavki is doing. It's, it's having those conversations, because you know it's easy to have unity in a moment of crisis of, okay, and this is in some ways important generally when it's not crisis either. Okay, let's stop pretending that the issues that divide us matter so much, that I hate your guts, that you hate my guts, you know, that that is something which is important to appreciate and internalize. But there's also the added level, and this is what creates something that we would hope is a lasting unity, is let's actually talk through our differences and find a way to coexist, to work together despite those differences, and using these moments as an opportunity to make that happen is the kind of work that hopefully some people uh, among them Rabbi Slotky are doing to make sure that this is going to be, again, a lasting sense of unity. To whatever degree it exists here in town also, I know there's certainly more unity than, you know, we've had. We generally have a pretty good situation here, but uh, to do it even more so, if whatever, to whatever degree, everything going on right now is bringing people closer together, and it gives you an opportunity to more easily knock on someone's door, give them a call, reach out to them, and resolve something that you've had going with them for a while, uh, it's a time to talk it out, not just to hug and, you know, we can ignore what divides us at the moment, but later on we'll have the same fights all over again. Uh, to really remain unified uh, requires doing some hard work. Yeah, on that note, on our trip there was a lot of bus time. We spent time busing around the parts of the country, down south and up north, and I came to a big ultimate. <laughs> and shared something which, which bothered me. Right? It was something that he had shared. You can ask him the details later or ask me the details later. Not relevant. You don't need details. But it's something he had sent out on, on an email. And, and it, it, it bothered me. I, I took offense to it. And I sat down next to the Goldstrom on the bus. We sat down a lot. We had a lot of time together, um, which was beautiful. And I brought it up. And we had, I don't know, it was probably an hour, right, plus discussion about it. It was one of the most refreshing discussions that I've had in general in a long time. We were able to have honest, open, healthy dialogue. And I know that I felt, I'm hoping you felt the same. At the end, I, we really worked through something which bothered me and we came to a resolution. And I think that's an example of what Goldschmidt is saying, is that when something of that nature occurs, something happens, and, the, and this can happen in the slightest and the biggest ways in so many areas. And the courage that we need to sometimes take and the steps we need to take to sometimes speak something out and talk it out, bring it up. It's not always comfortable, but situations like this really lend themselves to make it more comfortable, to make it a framework of where it actually can be open talked about and discussed, and it was something which was, to me, a beautiful moment on the trip, not planned, wasn't on the schedule, but it's something which really came as a result of everything that we were going through. 
you're so curious what it is. Right? <laughs> um, but uh, I'm not going to get into that. But, you know, people who uh, come to Shari Torah know this. I beat this over your head every Yom and the Ram time. Is the mitzvah of tochacha, rebuke, it is not one where you're doing something bad, but I'm going or something. I'm going to tell you to stop talking during davening, whatever it is. It's not just that. It's that too. But uh, it's usually not that. It's usually... And Ramban talks about this, is you go to someone else, and if they harm you or wrong you in some way, you tell them that you feel such. Uh, and that's the tokaka is, you hurt my feelings, you did something to me, etc. Now, that's not a conversation where it's going to necessarily be only accusatory one direction. Sometimes the other person can explain themselves, and, uh, and then a resolution comes about that way. Uh, that's an important element of this too, but it's the mitzvah, people very often think of this like in an unfair way, like someone did something to me, and now it's my, it's my responsibility to go tell them that they've harmed me in some way. Uh, we feel like that's not something we should have to do. The Ramban says that's what the mitzvah of is. It's to actually approach people and have these conversations. Sometimes uh, it doesn't make sense. If the person can't handle it, they're not made for that kind of a conversation. Okay, that's a different discussion of what you do halakhically. But uh, that is indeed something which is a mitzvah that we have. It's an obligation that we have when there's something to air out, that's indeed something we do. Yeah. And we're moving on to another aspect, another topic. The, the intense range of emotions that we experienced was, was almost like mind-boggling. The emotions that we experienced and emotions that we experienced from those who we were meeting with. On one hand, there was incredible sadness which would certainly make sense. People lost relatives, had relatives that were captured, that are still today in the hands of these animals. And you can only imagine, just right now in my mind, I keep conjuring up this picture of this two couples that we met, who both of them had sons who are still today captured in, in Gaza. And they came with pictures of their, of their children. And they were standing there. And just, we had this, this picture, this captured in my mind of, of this couple holding their son, like for dear life, holding on to this picture. That's what they have of their son right now. And one can only imagine the pain that they're experiencing at that moment. And just a few moments later, after they spoke to us, after they shared with us their difficult story, we were gathered in a circle and singing a chenu together. All the participants, along with these parents. And it, it, it almost, the mood shifted from one of, of terrible sadness to one of consolation, one of connection, one of appreciation of like for all the the, the that we're davening for, that all the Kodesh Baruch was watching over us. And that was one range of emotion. And then almost a few minutes later, it was just literally a few minutes later, we're walking outside, and we chanced upon a Shavabrachas. The Shavabrachas was of a chayal, of a soldier, who had got married a few days earlier. One of the people who, were, who, knew, who knew the story and knew the background said he was the classic example, the prototype example of someone who went straight from his chuppah, straight to the front lines, which he did. And he sat, a couple of days later, he had some time off, and he came back, and they made a surprise Shavu for him. 
And we chanced upon it, we heard about it, and we said, we're going to go join. It was funny because we, we, we were on a tight schedule, and the driver said, okay, we have five, you can go for five minutes. Just five minutes. It's okay, we'll, we'll be back in five minutes. And went there, I think it was about, I don't know, over an hour later that we, that we came back. Ultimately, the driver, I think, joined us in the dancing, and the, the, the experience of all of us dancing together with the greatest level of celebration because of what the Shavu deserves was almost not a contradiction. It's what the Jewish people are feeling today. They're feeling, yes, an intense sadness, which is there. At the same time, celebration of things like a new house being built, connected, singing Achena together, all going together, all fitting together, all intermeshed with the beauty of Klal Yisrael and what it represents and what we really felt and that swing of emotions that we went through is the swing of the Jewish people, which we have to all swing together with, experience with, feel that pain, feel that sadness, feel the joy of Kashbaruch watching over to us and the, all the things that are taking place in a positive sense, feel the connectivity of the Jewish people, and through that, really be a, a prism of everything that we're seeing in Kalah Yisrael. That bus driver, he wasn't like just uh, need to go home and go to sleep. He actually, I think his bus was going to be used to take some terrorists, you know, uh, to prison, I think. Or something, oh, really? Something like that. No, I didn't hear that. He was still, it's still that important. <laughs> um, the, the, it, you know, uh, another instance in where, where we saw this, you know, it, it's very, it is very distinctly Jewish. This is within our value system. We have, you know, the idea that we can have competing emotions to feel them simultaneously. other, you know, uh, something like that. Um, it's very much, it's a Jewish thing, it's especially an Israeli thing. You know, the, every year they transition from Yom HaZikaron to Yom HaTzimut from terrible sadness to incredible joy, seeing these as ways in, you, know, you can jump from one to the other, even sometimes feeling both simultaneously, that these emotions enhance each other in some ways, that's very much uh, who we are. Um, I think that's an important thing to keep in mind as our community continues to function over the next uh, however many months, however long the war lasts and even beyond, there's going to be times where you might feel like it's not appropriate to have a, I don't know, a Hanukkah party or, or whatever it might be. It's important to normalize experiencing joyous circumstances still. In some ways, it's especially a time to do that. When we first heard of the news of this, this was on Shemini Yatzeret, and uh, I, you know, I, I spoke as we were hearing the news about how Simchas Torah still needs to be Simchas Torah. We still have to, you know, live our lives. Uh, Rabbi Daron Peretz, like I mentioned before, so what, was the, what were the circumstances of his family? His, uh, one of his sons was shot in the leg. Um, an injury that I believe he's mostly recovered from already, and another one of his sons was captured. He was a tank commander and is uh, still currently in captivity. His younger son, the one who was injured, was scheduled to have a wedding a few weeks later. And they didn't reschedule it. They had their wedding with a, with a brother who's still in captivity. They made sure to have that wedding because, again, you can have all of these emotions at once, as hard as it might be to have them, and in some ways, continuing to build Jewish families, to build Jewish homes, is exactly what Hamas wants you to stop doing. And uh, to continue living Jewish life in the face of all of that is something that he felt very strongly they needed to continue. You could have all of these emotions simultaneously, and that's something that we're going to be doing to a significant degree also. It's important to, to not see that as a problem, as a bad, terrible thing. When we spoke at Atara earlier today, there were a number of girls that asked about the 
uh, appropriateness of sharing jokes, memes, etc. during this time. And uh, you know, I think we both uh, agree. You know, depends on the joke for sure. <coughs> but uh, but uh, you know, having having humor, dark humor, whatever kind of humor you need to help you uh, stay sane during this time, that's also incredibly appropriate in many instances, and it's not a contradiction to the sadness that we certainly feel as we're monitoring the news and we're following everything that's going on. Just to piggyback off of that, you probably could imagine that much of the emotions that are felt and the feelings that people have in Eretz Yisrael are of fear. They just experienced one of the most horrific infiltrations into our holy land that ever took place. And you think people walking around with trepidation and fear and, and, and can't function. It's funny, we, we met, it was on the second night, we met Rav Nevensal, who is the former chief rabbi of the old city. I think he's 92 today. And the fact that he gave us time was, was incredibly special. We all gathered into his home. One of the most beautiful things, by the way, I never, I, I think about this now, his wife, right, came and pulled up a chair and wanted to like, holding on to every word that he said. It's a beautiful thing. Right? She's probably heard a lot of his speeches over the, I don't know how many years they're married, probably many. And like, she wanted to be part of it. Like she like, well, you know, she, it was such a beautiful sight. Any case, someone asked him, you know, that many people in our communities, they're living with this fear and this anxiety. You know, what should we tell them? And his response instantaneously was, tell them to move here. <laughs> and he said that, that because in Eretz Yisrael, that's not, it's not the feeling. Yes, they're certainly aware of what took place and doing everything they can to protect, nothing should ever happen again. But the overwhelming feeling is not fear. It's strength. It's call yourself strong, we're moving on, we are strong. And one rabbi has mentioned this over the trip is that the battle's already won in their mind. We've won already. We won the battle. Now we're just trying to figure out how we look to the future, how we live as people together, and how we keep on going. But in their mind, we've won the battle because we're with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, we know that that's going to be the ultimate result. And fear is not just, it's not, it's not part of the feeling, so not the overwhelming feeling that you feel at all in Eretz Israel today. The moving here element is... I think very strong. I, I definitely, I think I heard somebody remark at one point, if you think all the things that are happening to the Jewish people right now is disheartening and making them want to leave Israel, you don't understand Jews. Right? The, at large, uh, Nefesh Benefesh has reported a very significant spike in interest in Aliyah. I don't think that's just a function. It might to some degree be a function of trying to get out of whatever country a Jew finds himself in that's not Israel, uh, where a lot of concerning trends are developing. But a lot of it is running towards Israel. We realize, and this is certainly something I felt as we were going through more and, and seeing so much more heroism and, uh, and Gevura, is that here we're in the minor leagues, uh, the, the big leagues where, where things are really happening, where, where Jewish life is, you know, being truly lived, is in Eretz Israel, especially right now. Uh, if that makes you feel bad, I'm sorry, but you should feel a little bad. Uh, we, we, we had a, one of the rabbis on our trip, his name is Rabbi Larry Rothwax. He's a rabbi in Teaneck, New Jersey, about a year ago. He announced to his kehillah that he is uh, planning on making Aliyah. Anybody who wants to come with him is welcome to. There are, you know, 
being involved in a new building project in Beit Shemesh in that area. Some people are joining in. Obviously, it's complicated. Uh, he spoke to us about the, the pull to, come to, to go to Israel, and he was, he was in some ways worried about sharing it with his Rebbe. His own Rebbe uh, is someone who feels that, uh, at least when it comes to a rabbi and a kehillah, it's kind of like a marriage here. You're stuck with each other in one way or another. Um, Come on, it's not that bad. <laughs> but it uh, happens to be that in the laws of uh, marriage and Jewish law, if one of the spouses wants to make Aliyah, the other one has to follow it. Uh, but uh, but uh, he, uh, he felt this tension, and he just said, like, as, as much as I know my own Rebbe feels like this is not something I should be doing, the pull to Israel uh, is a very strong one, and, and we should feel that. Uh, it, it's... I can't emphasize enough, I said this to the students also, right now it's safe. You know, we, we didn't experience a single siren. There were sirens in the areas that we were passing through, but I guess we had really good timing. Uh, but uh, overall, life is capable of going on there. Uh, and it, it's a, it's, we should feel like uh, it's a place to really live our Jewish lives. Not just because of what's going on. It shouldn't be running away from anything, but running towards Eretz Yisrael, to be in the big leagues, to, to live uh, Judaism the way it's meant to be lived. Uh, if this pulls anyone in that direction, you know, uh, take the pull. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure your experience, but I had over Shabbos, I counted five people came over to me and said, Rabbi, if you're going, we're going with you. So, I don't know, it's getting tempting. I once had yeah. somebody who said that to me. It's like, Rabbi, just tell, do whatever you say, we'll, we'll go. Just earlier that week, that same person, like, totally didn't listen to me with something else I told him he had nothing to do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope it's sincere. Um, but, uh, it's, uh, but we might be opening up a kila together, and um, we'll, we'll figure out where some more shav, and uh, I don't know, figure out the north or the south, and um, we'll take up signups maybe tomorrow. We'll see. Right? Right? You coming? Uh, we figured that already. Another topic I think which is worth mentioning and, and certainly focusing on. There was a horrific tragedy, horrific. 1,400 plus deaths, hard to even wrap our heads around. There also were incredible miracles that we sitting in America didn't even hear about. And even when we went, we heard of, of a few of them. But there were probably many, many, many more that we didn't hear of. And that itself, even when, when there was incredible, incredible tragedy, to see and to focus on the Nisim, the open miracles that took place, something which is important for us to do. Just mention two of them quickly. This they wrote, there was a building which was the police were housed in this building. It's a big building, it's a picture of the way it used to look. And right now it's reduced to rubble. Why? Because the terrorists took it over. And when they captured the police station, they, I don't know exactly how many, but there's a number of terrorists that they, they won. They captured the police station of Steirut. And the response of the military was they took bulldozers and they bulldozed the entire police station and reduced it to rubble, killing everyone inside. Now, okay, what they told us, and we didn't even think about this, was that that saved perhaps hundreds of not thousands of lives. The fact that terrorists made that decision to go into the police station, as a result, they were all killed together. Because had they... It's a pretty concentrated neighborhood. We saw the buildings all around there, the big buildings all around there. And had they done what they probably wanted to do, was move on, thousands of more lives would have been lost. 
And Kashbaruch put into their head to go make this move, take over the police station. And as a result, they were all killed and they saved many, many residents of Sterot as much as they were. I think the 54 people in Sterot killed. 54, I don't know that exact number, but there was a number, but it could have been far, far worse. Another one of the incidents that we heard about was also from one of the residents who were from Sterot and he spoke about that I think it was the, the, the Moshe right next to Beiri, which was one of the places where there was terrible, terrible tragedy. He says there was helicopters, there were two helicopters that were flying over that were coming to do what they can. And the terrorists saw these helicopters and they had a RPG missile and they shot it towards the helicopters and they actually hit it. And the helicopter had to make an emergency landing. It came down. Baruch Hashem, all the chaylam that were in there survived. And they came out of the helicopter and they fought a battle with the terrorists that were on the ground ended up killing them all. I said that itself. Save the entire next Moshav. Terrorists were on the way to the Moshav because of their brilliance of shooting down this helicopter. They were all destroyed and killed. And again, each one of these things that Akash Baruch Hu did really open Nisan saved so many, so many more lives that certainly could have been lost on that day. And we have to certainly recognize that as well. Some of the things... That we that we heard about. That would also add, you know, the police station. Sometimes they, they made tactical mistakes, the terrorists, in ways that, you know, happened to have helped with a lot of Jews. But there there was certainly something we heard from a number of residents uh, in Stairot and other places. Is many of the terrorists who infiltrated, they infiltrated in ways in which they knew way too much about the neighborhoods that they were invading. They knew where to go in various ways that they thought to go to the police station. They knew where it was. There's certain things you could find from Google Maps, I don't know, whatever it is, but, uh, but they knew combinations to things, they, they knew how to find people uh, in ways that was very clearly information that they received from, you know, Gaza residents who came in work permits, who were involved in working alongside Jews in construction, other kinds of work, and apparently monitoring things and planning all of this for quite a while. Uh, there's a significant feeling of betrayal that the Jews uh, in these cities have, knowing that so many of the terrorists are able to infiltrate in the ways that they did because they had insider information. That's going to make it very, very hard to, I, mean, I think, impossible to really reach any kind of peace with the people that they opened up their homes and their neighborhoods to in the past. It's a very uh, experience <coughs> to have. You know, with everything Rabbi Weinberg said, also, some of, the, some of what they did, it might have been misguided tactically, but it was clearly indicating and betrayed a certain knowledge that they had gained uh, from people who Jews thought were their friends just a few days ago. There's interesting, one other point, which I'm just thinking about in terms of the, of the miracles, was, what was the ambassador's name? Spoke to us? Leon. Julian, who was an ambassador. And one of his jobs was to talk to the press, and he spoke about the difficulties that he was having talking to the press, as we all certainly know. But he mentioned something which I had never heard, and something which was, which was fascinating. He said there actually was a coordinated effort between Hezbollah and Hamas to attack on the same day, from two fronts, on the north and the south. And their goal was to infiltrate on two ends, and then keep moving forward, and who knows what that could have looked like. And he said, what changed? It didn't happen. Hezbollah has been involved on some level, but they still didn't have the level of attack that Hamas did. And he said what changed, which is sick and incredible at the same time, 
was the Hamas got excited about the fact they saw this musical festival taking place, and they saw the potential and the opportunity that they had to go and do terrible damage and terrible murder spree, which they did. That got, they jumped the gun. And them jumping the gun, they left Hezbollah behind, and they did the attack on their own, which itself may have saved, who knows, thousands and thousands of lives, and maybe would have changed the whole course of, of, of history had it actually been attacked both in the north and the south at the same time in a surprise way as it took place in the south. And again, I think we have to just appreciate, yes, as much as it's, it's horrific in that, but there's the underlying Yad Hashem that the Kodesh Baruch Hu, who is a Shomer Yisrael, watches over the Jewish people, was there to not allow that to happen. And as horrific as the, the tragedy was, how much worse it could have been had actually that it took place in both the North and the South together. I think from here it probably makes sense to segue into ways in which help can be given. Um, I'd say one very inspiring element before our trip even more formally began, as you know, uh, some of you were involved in this, that we had packed a lot of uh, medical and defensive supplies for Tzahal, and we were bringing them with us uh, from Cincinnati uh, to, uh, to Israel. When we got to JFK Airport, there were a, lot of, uh, a great many Jews with a lot and lot of uh, stacked up bags in the airport. These people were not going on a flight to Israel. They were not personally going. They had decided to volunteer and just hang around JFK every day to see if each LL flight has some extra room for extra bags that they could throw in there. Um, and it was, it, was a, it was one of the most inspiring scenes of the whole trip before it even got started. They have a synagogue in the back of JFK Airport. I don't know if people are familiar with it. It's like a whole shopping center of different religions that you could pass through. But uh, the synagogue is like the headquarters for packing things. They helped us make sure that the LL staff knew that our bags uh, you know, were good to go. With all the stuff, they're serving LL workers pizza, knowing how frustrated they must be getting with all the extra work that's being put upon them. Uh, that, that itself is just uh, also inspiring in the sense of Kali Yisrael's getting together here in, in, in the United States, too, to do tremendous work. Uh, for the Jewish people. Uh, there are people who are just dedicating their days to service in Kalyasol in this way. Um, there is, I'm sure you know, there's the rally that's happening on uh, Tuesday next week. Hopefully you can come. I believe it's not too late to sign up. We can't guarantee spots on buses necessarily at this point, but if you do sign up and there's open slots, we definitely uh, can have you join us and uh, hope you can. Uh, there's another project also that uh, all the shuls are going to be working on together. I think uh, maybe Ryan would be want to elaborate on. Yeah, so uh, one of the things that were probably most striking, we were in three different hotels in our just in Yerushalayim itself. We, were in, we stayed in one hotel and then we ate in a different hotel and then we went to the third hotel the first night. And you walk into these hotels. These are five-star hotels. Usually the lobby is beautiful and pristine, and like you walk in certain quiet. It was like a madhouse and a train station, like anything you could imagine what, as they call St. Israel Balagan looks like, this was it. They were, men, women, children, all over the lobbies. And you could imagine, they're living in one room, two rooms, some of them, multiple children. You're not gonna stay in your hotel room, imagine, you know, for a month at a time. They were all over in the lobbies and they were trying, I heard in the morning, they were trying to make some semblance of school, Maybe successful, maybe not, I, I don't know. Um, but they were trying. We saw a night, I think each night, I saw two different nights for sure, there was a band that came to try to just give some level of, of you know, feeling of something going on. And like, this is one hotel. 
he told us the number, how many, I think all hotels in the country, which is hundreds, maybe more than that, opened up their doors to refugees, besides two. I'll leave those two nameless right now. He, the person has told us I need a strong plug, probably don't go to those two hotels. Those two hotels refused to open their doors to refugees. In any case, it, it, it's mind-boggling. The, the, just in the Ramada Hotel, one of the hotels we visited, there was 1,400 people. 1,400 people who are there in the Ramada Hotel now, this place from State Road, and we were in the damn panorama, there was, I don't know, numbers, but there was hundreds of people, another hotel right down the road. And one of the th- ways that we felt that maybe we can do and make some impact is connect to these families, do something for them. And I reached out to Rabbi Mutzen, Rabbi Strahl Mutzen, Rabbi Edith Mutzen's brother, who was one of the organizers on this trip, he works for the OU, and he was involved in many of the projects. I reached out to him and said, is there anything being done that we can do family to family? A family reaching out to a family in, in distress, refugee families. So he told me that he heard something's being done. It's not by the OU, but he said there was a Rav, Rabbi Freinloch, who was a Rav in the five towns, had been in touch with someone. He said, call him. So I called him, this was Friday, and I said, did you hear about this organization? He said, yeah, he actually was in touch with them. And they're starting a pilot program to do exactly this. Hook up families to families. So today, myself, Rabbi Goldschmidt, and Rabbi Alt had a Zoom call with three of the people who were involved in this in these efforts, it's incredible what they're doing. This is from ground up. They're starting just now. It hasn't actually launched yet. It's launching next week. There's, there's, they want to start, I think, with 300 families. They're, that's their pilot. Their goal is to get to 50,000 this year. 50,000, right, in a year. That's, that's what the needs are. And he said they're starting with 300 families. And the goal is going to be, he said, twofold. He was so clear. He said, we are not adopting families. Adopting families gives you the feeling of I'm taking care of them. This is not what's happening. It's not adopting. It's working and sharing together. Each other, two families merging together. The words he used to me on Friday were we were expanding our family. Families expanding. Embracing and as a result, expanding our family. And he said in two ways that we can do that. Monetarily, he said the monetary needs are are significant. Significant. So what they decided was they came to obviously take care of all the monetary needs of all the refugees, but they said if each family would do something which would be of significance but not too difficult, their number they're giving is $280 a month to do, do that for, for six months, to take it off for six months. So $250, which is about a thousand shekel, goes directly towards the family to help them with the basic needs. So the two, family, the two types of families that they're accepting into this program are either ones that are displaced or one who the, usually it's the, the father of the family, is in Mulem, is in reserves and not there to be part of the family and the, generally a mother and, and who's home by herself. Those are the families that they're doing and often much of them are from lower socioeconomic background and they're struggling. So helping, so 250 goes directly to them, $30 is being paid towards a coordinator who's helping coordinate all the effort in the families that we're dealing with, etc. So that's one way. Give them a little bit. And it's not that we're giving the money directly to them. That would be very awkward and, and would feel like very funny. Here's money. You know, the money goes to the organization. The organization is going to give these families help. He said very smartly. They're almost like paying them as a stipend. Because these families also have a role. So the role is to feel like shlichim. They're going to really be helping out and being ambassadors and talking about their, what's, what's happening. So they have like a role to play in this as well. And it's like a stipend for their role. So that's the way it's being done. And the other thing is the kasha, the connection. They want to make a real, meaningful, 
Obviously, there's language barriers which some of us have, and they maybe make it more challenging. I'm sure there are English-speaking families as well, those who are well-versed in Hebrew, or it's an easier time with the families that are not English-speaking. But do something meaningful, whether it's said, everyone should decide for themselves what that looks like, whether it's a once a week or Chavez call, or it's more than that, the pictures sending back and forth. But I think we all have to be creative and think of ways of doing so. So hopefully we're going to launch this. We're going to be launching this, this program for our community. They're starting this pilot program. Again, we're part of the pilot. I think there's, I think there's five other shuls maybe that are part of the communities that are part of this pilot program. We're, we're going to be hopefully one of them. And it really could be something which could be very impactful. And he said, without question, the greatest impact will be for ourselves. Without question. And we all know that to be true. Right? When a person is able to do that and give in that way, certainly that's going to be something which we'll all gain from tremendously. And hopefully we can be really ambassadors to do this and hopefully get them on some level started on this program to, to get to the number of 50,000. Uh, keep an eye on the newsletter emails that we'll all send out. It's called Our Mishpaka. It's going to be uh, something that we'll send out more information on soon. I, I could just speak to... You know, the phenomenon that he's talking about, I've already done to some degree. Uh, I got to meet people personally while we were there. There's one uh, particular family that I connected to in, uh, that uh, were evacuees of a place called Shlomit. Right now I'm, I'm WhatsApp messaging, I'm talking to this guy, his name is Eli Vital, we're sharing the Torah, we're sharing words of physic, etc. Um, it, it's, the, the function that it serves is that so much of what we see in the news and all of that, it, it's statistics, it's numbers, it's too abstract to really wrap our minds around what Kali Yisrael is going through. If you take on a micro level and you look at a particular individual, a particular family, you understand what they're going through, you're close to them, then you have the ability to some degree multiply that by all the families that are going through this kind of thing. But the, to focus on the micro level first before you expand to the macro, it, it helps you to a tremendous degree in feeling and understanding what's going on in Eretz Israel, and that's, I'd say, the primary goal of what we're hoping to do. I think now it probably makes sense to open up to, to questions. Any questions? They could be technical, they could be hashkafic, uh, uh, whatever, whatever it might be. Dark humor. Dark humor. <laughs> Amazing crowd. Can yeah. I say something? Another question? That's why I live in Little Lake, Little Lake, New Jersey. Last, last week, somebody came to my house. A lady, she's originally from Israel, she moved to America, she, you know, she came from a dysfunctional family, she moved with her husband here, and she said she's one of 17 children. Says only her and her family that was from only her and one of her brothers are from there. All the poor villages, 15 children out from She says one of her sisters had a ticket to go to the festival. It was on Sunday study, it was on Kashmir, it says it wasn't here, it was a day, you know. And she was, her sister didn't have money to, for the bus to get to, to get transportation to go there. Says that, you know, so obviously she didn't order that, that saved her life. Says her sister called her up after the and said, I want to tell you. I would say Shem cares about me, and I start keeping Shabbos again. She says, in the darkness, what did she see? That your sister, which grew up in a front family, 15 other kids are not from their family. The one sister that Nava came from said she didn't stop keeping Shabbos, because she was safe. She saw Shem watched out for her, thought about it. And didn't give her mind to go through. She got the ticket, the vessel, she never went to mind. It's a transportation. Got to be careful about these kind of stories. It certainly beggars the question of, all right, what about all the people who did suffer, you know? Um, but at the same time, she yes. Religious revival is happening in Israel to a significant degree. The Kailim that are asking for crazy tzitzis and kipot is amazing. I heard a, a guy uh, texted his uh, sister who's in Sa, like finding a good guys to marry. She's like, having a lot of trouble. I'm looking for a religious guy. They all look religious right now. They're all wearing tzitzis. You can't tell who's who. Uh, 
that you know, in times of crisis, people want to connect to Hashem more. That's another thing that we hope uh, people hold on to, even as this is all going on. Yeah. Yeah, okay. so, I, I, I have a question. Like, I, I know I personally have been struggling with like balancing like how much media to consume about like all of this, and I, I, I imagine that I'm probably not the only one. Although I, I don't know, but um, you're not. I was wondering if, like, it's certainly like we have like a wide spectrum of perspective here, and I was wondering if I could, uh, you know, get your guys' opinion and take on it, and how to like, balance, you know, how to be balanced on one hand to share the, like, what's going on with our brothers and sisters and our sister but on the other hand, to maintain some level of balance too. Balance, I think, is the key word, um, without question. I personally have made a commitment and have not, thank God, seen any of anything which has been horrific and barbaric. And I'm, I'm, I think that, to me, that was, that was something very important. And I'm not... At the same time, right, the knowledge without the commentary, to me, is something which I think is important, to really have some knowledge of what's going on. We have a job of being noticeable to really feel the, what's, what's going on and to know what's going on. So I think there's... there's Knowledge, there's commentary, and then there's depicting it, right? almost on three levels. Right? To me, the, the depiction of it is something which is to be out of bounds. The commentary, I'm not interested. Everyone, have, everyone has their commentary and, and, and their sharing of, of opinions. I can go on for all day and all night about that. And then there's the knowledge, the actual facts and the things that are going on. I'm sticking to the first, personally, and I think the second and third are at best a waste of time and, and, and perhaps worse than that, my opinion. The, the language of no seba'ol is itself instructive. It comes from Mishnah and Pekayavos. It, it indicates that I am sharing a burden with someone else. It makes it lighter for those that are going through suffering when other people empathize with them, when they carry that with them. That being said, uh, you know, using that analogy, empathy can be crushing to a person. Sometimes we try to take on more than we can personally handle. That's certainly going to depend on the person. Uh, what, what can you handle? What can you not handle? Uh, in terms of time, in terms of the intensity of what, you, what it is that you're taking and uh, I think I'm a news junkie, I consume a lot more than others, I feel like it's something that I, that I should be doing. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a highly individualized answer and I think you need to be reflecting on, as you, go, as you ask yourself this question, is this something which is breaking me? Uh, because if I'm trying to take on too much of that burden, I'm going to be crushed under it as well. To me, the best analogy to that is Rebecca Kamenetsky has a piece in Emes Liakov where he talks about the camp of Kal Yisrael. He says the camp was very interesting. There was 12 flags, each one unique, each one different. 
And a flag really is like a symbolism of who you are, what you stand for. And every person had, every shaver had their own flag, which means I'm different than you are, I stand for something than, different than you. But they're all encamped around the Mishkan, all encamped around the Shekhinah, all around the Kodesh Baruch Hu. And he says that's really the picture what Klai Yisrael needs to look like, is that we're not going to agree, and that's okay. We're different, and that's okay. But it's realizing, number one, we're all encamped around the Kodesh Baruch Hu, to the extent that we can, and some people more, some people less, to the extent they're able to. And a realization that I can respect, appreciate, and really have the love for the person without necessarily accepting or, or their values, that's okay. That's okay. Me and Begosh don't agree on everything, and that's okay. It's okay. I love him nonetheless, and, and I say that with the full sincerity. And I think that's something which is really a, a very, very important value that we cannot necessarily agree with what someone else does, how they act, what they do, what they're involved in, and still have an appreciation for them. There's the concept of appreciating the person, and the concept of Eilu Eilu, that there's different ways of approaching HaKadosh Baruch Hu, different ways of getting to the Mishkan, different ways of approaching the path towards HaKadosh Baruch Hu. They look different. They may look very, very vastly different from each other, and that's okay. There's, there's Eilu Eilu, there's Shivan Panim Torah. Not everything is one of the Panim Torah. 